Well, good morning to everyone here with us in person this morning. For those who are visiting with us online, it's a joy to be able to gather together and remind each other of the, the greatness and the, the glory of God's grace to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we get to do. In the midst of whatever might have been going on in your life in the week that was, or whatever you might be facing in the week that's coming, there's one singular truth that, that overrides all of that, and that is God's saving purposes in Jesus Christ for sinners such as us. That gives us strength to face the things that we face. It gives us the grace to give the grace that we need to give, and it's what we have. And it is all coming to us as an overflow of the wonders of His love. The theme of our Advent series, the wonders of His love. And we've been finding Jesus in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, turn to Isaiah chapter 11. As we continue on in our series, and hopefully you and your family or you were blessed and encouraged by the Advent devotional this week, the, the simple but heart-stirring questions to wrestle with and, and, uh, and be encouraged by, and I hope the week ahead will be the same for you. Last week, we considered that Jesus is the light. This week, we're going to see that Jesus is the branch that bears good fruit. And we're going to see how God is fulfilling something for us that we could never do on our own. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Guys, we come to this passage, we come to this point of your truth, and as we turn our heads and our hearts toward it, I ask that you would bless our time, that you would encourage us in Christ, that you would encourage us toward Christ, and that we would see in him uh, the hope of this passage. God, help us, we pray, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. By now, most of y'all put your tree up, right? Your tree is up, you're shaking your head no. That's honest, I like that. I don't like that your tree isn't up, but at least the honesty is there. Real, artificial, it really doesn't matter. It's up, soon to be, and it's decorated. It's brightly teeming with merriment and cheer. Maybe you have more than one tree in your home. And maybe there are a whole host of other decorations and aromas that encourage more merriment and cheer. But there's one thing your tree is lacking, real or pre-lit artificial. None of them that are up in your home are teeming with life. Take your pre-lit artificial tree. There is plastic and wire and metal. There's no wood. There are no needles. It never knew life. It never grew up as a small shoot sticking out of Canadian soil. No, it's masquerading as a tree. Or take your real tree. 
used to be alive, but then somebody cut it down. It's a dying tree. Sorry, it's true, but it's dying in your living room. And to you younger ones here, um, your dad is religiously watering that thing to extend the little soft greenery that's left in it. He probably even makes formal announcements about that watering process. Time has now drawn nigh, where henceforth I shall water the tree. And we all stare in awe and wonder at this noble task. But then, the collection of fallen needles, the hardening of the branches, or eventually the disassembling and boxing up of your tree. All of it reminds us that there's no life here. No matter how much merriment and cheer we hang on it, it's not producing any life. The Christmas tree in Isaiah 11 doesn't seem all that alive either, does it? We're looking at a stump. A stump. The people of God in Isaiah's day had abandoned and rejected God. They dressed up their religion with merriment and cheer, but it was dead. They masqueraded as being the people of God while their hearts desired and clung to the artificial. Their hope was fixated on something incapable of delivering. As they ignored the calls to return to the one who does deliver. And as a result, desolation was coming. Destruction was on the way. Foreign enemies were coming and were going to lay waste to the land. There were going to be many used-to-be-alive stumps across all over the land of promise. And Isaiah was preaching a very hard message to clogged ears, distracted minds, and hardened hearts. His message was, you can't abandon God Act like you haven't abandoned God and think all is going to go well. Not a popular sermon series. But while there is judgment in Isaiah's message, there embedded in it is the promise of restoration. As we look at a more, than, more, pathetic, more pathetic than Charlie Brown's Christmas tree in Isaiah 11, there is a small shoot of promise that will grow to be a big, huge, fruitful tree of redemption and restoration. And that shoot that becomes a branch that bears fruit without ceasing is the long-awaited Savior. Even in the moments of despair, God is at work. Even in the moments when all feels or looks lost, God's promise is there. What may seem small is quite significant when it's God who's bringing it about. And that's how we're going to approach this this morning. We're going to consider the wonders of His love in that God's promise when all looks lost, and our hope in a counterfeit world. 
What we have on display for us is going to make us consider these things. God's promise when all looks lost and our hope in a counterfeit world. So let's jump in. God's promise when all looks lost, where sin and sorrow abound. Maybe you feel like your life is in a place like that. You are in a a desolate field surrounded by stumps and fallen trees. Maybe you feel like sin and sorrow abound right now in your life. Well, there's God's promise when all looks lost. I want us to cast our eye up if you have a Bible open or if you're on your phone or a tablet or what have you, scroll up just a couple of verses to look at the last two of Isaiah 10. The last two verses of Isaiah 10 paint an incredibly bleak picture that leads us into Isaiah 11. And that bleak picture is here in these words, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. It is a sobering, stark, overwhelmingly unmistakable reality that God's judgment for sin is sweeping in its scope. It is devastating in its justice. God's the one that's doing this. Now God, and this is hard for our heads to reconcile, the way that God works is is very hard to understand. God moves in mysterious ways. And he uses these foreign enemies to bring about his justice on a people who've abandoned and rejected him, but then placate by performing religious things as if that would appease God, like he's some pagan deity that they've incorporated into their cultus. No, no, he is using these things to bring about his, just, his justice. And so it, when we get into moments like that, that makes us feel uncomfortable about about what God is doing, that God is the one bringing such devastating justice, when we get into those moments in the Bible, and there's plenty of them where it feels overwhelming, wait, wait, God is at work here doing this or allowing this to happen? Why? We have to remind ourselves some things about the character of God, His attributes. One of the things that we need to realize quickly is that God is holy, The holiness of God leaves no room to accommodate for sin. Leaves no room for it. The holiness of God leaves zero room for it. The other thing that we need to remind our hearts in moments like this, where we see God playing an active agent, at least in the way that history is unfolding to bring about His justice, is that whatever God does, even if it's a mystery to us, He does it with perfection. There's no infirmity in it. There's nothing wrong in it. He's not wrong to do it, and he's not wrong in doing it. He's perfect. He's holy in his perfections, and he's perfect in his holiness. And that should be unsettling to us. It really should. And maybe we feel that. Maybe we look at our lives and we know that we've been excusing and allowing sin. We've been accommodating it in our hearts and in our lives. 
We've tried to domesticate it to see if we have, just to have control over it. And the reality is it is a devastating harm for our souls. And, and before a holy and perfect God, it, is, it deserves justice. And maybe you feel that way in your life. You've been fighting against that. And I would say, I would say to you, please keep listening. Because God provides means for us and our sin. Now, some of us in here may feel like we're, we're sinking in days of sorrow. That it's hard for us to sing in days of sorrow. It's hard for us to have merriment and cheer right now because our days are full of sorrow. Sometimes the context of our lives are so desolate and barren that sorrow is our only feel. It's the only sound. And whether that sorrow is because of our sin or the sin of others or the reality of a sinful, broken world around us, We wake up each day feeling desperation. We wake up each day feeling exhausted already. Or we wake up with that ache, a deep heart spiritual ache. Something is not right in this life, in my life, in this world. And so this ache, it just hits us. And when that desperation and that exhaustion and that ache are sort of compounded over days and weeks and months and years, Apathy begins to to metastasize in our hearts, and we just start to feel apathetic toward God and, and the things in our lives. And the holiday season has a way of exposing that kind of sorrow. And maybe that's how you feel. Maybe that's how you feel. This morning in our adult class that's working through Micah right now for the Advent season, Jeff had asked the question, what does Advent do in, in terms of, like, makes us think about, and, 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 and what does it bring to mind? What does it remind us? And as we sat there in the class, one of the things that just dawned on me is that Advent season, as we move through the Bible, one of the things that it does for us is that it is very real and raw and honest about the darkness and gloom and nature of sin and what it brings in our lives. And that's actually for our good, to drive us to see then all that God brings to us through the, the, the light and life of His Son, Jesus Christ. As you would go to your doctor to get health care and treatment, you want that doctor to speak truthfully about your condition, and so God does for us, so as to drive us to Him for that healing and restoration. And so maybe Advent season is hard for us because it exposes to us sin and sorrow. If you were looking out over a field and it once was teeming with trees and life and it's all cut down in dead stumps, so too do we feel like that picture. But when all looks lost, there's still God's promise. When all looks lost, there's still God's promise. We have a shoot 
with roots. There's still life and hope and promise. And I want to say to you today in your sin and in your sorrow that it is far greater than you dare to even dream. Let's look again at Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What an incredible promise in light of what we read at the end of Isaiah 10. There's desolation everywhere. There are felled trees. Is that right, felled? I think, I don't know. It's like one of those weird verby things that I'm always going to say wrong. I'm just going to go with fallen trees everywhere. They're all over the place. What used to be alive is now no longer. And then comes this promise. So what's happening in this promise? Well, first of all, it's, it comes to us with some art and some beauty. It's, it's written in a, a sort of poetry-like fashion, which means the first line states the idea, and then the second line like expands it and furthers the idea. So line one says there's a shoot coming from a stump. That's this, this little picture, this little promise. It seems small. There's a stump. It's dead. There's nothing. But then yet there's this green little shoot So there's this idea that there's still something alive, even in this field of death. There's still something alive. Then the second line expands that further. It says that little idea of a shoot coming out of a stump, it's going to give way to the fact that it's going to be a branch with roots that bear fruit. You see where it is going, this idea where it's going. So the second line expands out further the the scope and the reach of what God is promising. So even in those, those darkest days, even in when the gloom feels overwhelming, even when all feels lost, there's still a green shoot because God says so. And that green shoot will grow to be a branch that bears fruit. What else is hanging around in this promise? Well, the stump has a name, the stump of Jesse. And some of you might be wondering, who's Jesse? That's interesting. What is this Jesse? Well, Jesse is referring to the father of David. David, if you know, is the king, sort of the ideal king in the sense of the Old Testament people of Israel. He was a type. There was this promise all wrapped up with David That God made that there would be one who comes from you whose kingdom will know no end. And so if all of the stumps would be dead, and if there would be no single green shoot, then that means God's promise to David would be dead. And so God is saying, I I have not backed out of or failed in my promise. There will be one who comes. There will be one who comes in that line who will do greater than David. All the kings after David were basically disasters. They led the people astray, head first into judgment. There was a good one here or there, but basically, when you read your Old Testament, it's just a disaster. But God is promising that one still is coming that will do what all these kings failed to do, now, now, as we consider verse 1, this shoot, and, and then we see 
its reference to roots, we, we realize that the shoot is the growth that is going above ground, and the roots are the life-giving means below ground. And I want to say to you, even if you look at your life and it just barely is even just the, the slightest little green shoot in your heart and in your life of hope or of strength or of endurance or of grace, know that there is a whole bunch that you can't see operating in your life that God is doing, that there is a whole world of roots of God's grace at work. God is working even if it all seems like stumps around you. There's so much unseen that God is doing in this world and in your life. He has not forgotten you. And he has not failed you. I love verse 10 of Isaiah 11. So Isaiah 11, 1 talks about the shoots. And then Isaiah 10 talks about the roots. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. When all looks lost, there's still yet God's promise. And whether it's a little shoot or a big branch bearing lots of fruit, God is very much at work rescuing, redeeming, restoring, strengthening, keeping his people. Now, that we see here in our passage that, that even when all looks lost, there is still yet God's promise And that then comes into our lives and helps us to give us a perspective and orient our lives to one that has a hope in the midst of a counterfeit world. A hope in a counterfeit world. Let's take a look at how the shoot is described in verse 2. Isaiah 11 verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Notice that obviously there was quite the significant um, um, modifier here, that this one who would come is backed by the Spirit. Backed by the Spirit. And just a a quick definition of of the Holy Spirit is, The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, so it's a person of God. Even though we think of the word spirit, we we don't necessarily think of a person like we would think of people in this room. But yet, God is three in one, one God in three persons. And so the Holy Spirit is the, the person of God bringing the power and presence of God to the people of God. The Holy Spirit is the person of God bringing the power and presence of God to the people of God. We see that play out in the Old Testament in very specific ways. And then we see it come in full measure in the New Testament in light of the redeeming work of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And so the Spirit is with this one who would come, resting on the one who will come. And this is very important for us because we know that the one who comes is is bringing about our salvation, is the promised Messiah, the coming Savior. Isaiah 61 verse 1 furthers this out. It's even furthering out of the idea that we get here in Isaiah 11:2. Listen to what this says about the shoot who has the Spirit backing 
It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. In Jesus' first sermon in his, the launch of his public ministry, he reads from this portion of Isaiah and he says to the people there, I'm that guy. Today, this is being fulfilled. And then we know that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's this baptism. In Mark 1, 10 through 11, it states that when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with whom, with you I am well pleased. So we have... A, a very Trinitarian focus on our redemption. God sending the Son. The Son doing what we could not do. The Spirit backing the Son in every way. And this is all to fulfill what God had promised and purposed to do. To rescue us. And so I, 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 I labor over that to, to say the one who's coming isn't just a really great guy. With a lot of ingenuity and skill. It's God in the flesh. It is the power of God and the presence of God to rescue the people of God. You don't have a, a little bit better than you Savior. You have God saving you. That is who is with you. That is why you have hope even when all feels lost. That is why you have joy even when there is gloom. It's because who is saving us? Well, it is God and He will not fail. And he will not fail. And that's what we get to see in the little run of couplets in the rest of verse 2. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those couplets, they're all related to the character and ability needed for the king. They're all kingly descriptors. You needed the king to be able to do these things or possess these things and have these things to lead the people so they don't end up in desolate places, wiped out by enemies. And so Jesus, the promised one who comes, is going to do this kingly work in such a way that it brings life for the people of God, not death. And he establishes something that lasts forever. All of these characters and qualities have to do with kingly responsibilities, and the shoot who will come will be divinely able to fulfill those responsibilities in the fullest of all measures. He will not fail. No more desolate fields of dead stumps. So what does that then mean for us now? Well, that's just it. We, we have a real, tangible, actual hope fixed here in our passage, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ and applied to our lives. This is truly a, a remarkable aspect of God's grace for us. Because I want to walk through a quick development of some of the phraseology that we find in our passage and where it ends up and what that means for you and me right now, this day. So first, I want us to look at Exodus 31, verse 3. Same phraseology that we find in Isaiah 11. It's talking about God going to equip the people who are going to be building the tabernacle. And what is the tabernacle? Tabernacle is where the 
power and presence of God dwell with the people. And so here we have, at the building and the constructing of the tabernacle, the people have been rescued out of slavery, and they brought to the edge of the land that they're to go into, and God is sort of ordering them and structuring them and preparing them to be his people. We considered this in our Exodus series last year. In Exodus 31.3, he says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. So the Spirit is specifically filling this person and team to do a very specific task that has to do with God's power and presence dwelling with his people. Then we come to our passage in Isaiah 11. And here we find the same sort of phraseology. The Spirit backs the coming Savior for the work of salvation to bring about the place where God's power and presence dwell with his people. It's amazing. Encouraging to see this furthering on. Well, there's more. Strikingly more. Amazingly more. And that's found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. We find all this phraseology now being applied to us who are in Christ. Listen to these words. Words that are familiar, perhaps, but think of them in light of what we just considered in Isaiah 11 and what we see developed over the pages of Scripture. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in His inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. So, All that God was promising would be in the one who would bring about our salvation is now being applied to our very hearts and lives. The things of our Savior Jesus now belong to you who are in Him through faith. That there isn't anything that you lack to have right now to live out your life in a hard world where evil is real and gloom is abounding and sometimes it feels like sin and sorrow are winning. You actually lack nothing because you have Christ and all that is Christ is now yours. The Spirit that backed the Savior is the same Spirit that is backing you. You lack nothing. God has given you everything. Now we have so many counterfeit wonders and loves and hopes in our world and in our lives. And some some of those counterfeits are like dead stumps or dead trees. It's, It's the thinking or the mentality that we have to do just enough good to outweigh our guilt. 
If we just keep laboring, just do enough good to outweigh our guilt, that God will be all right with us. That we'll get in, and I'll be enough. We're trying to appease this, and, and so we do the, the religious things or the functions, or, or we just say, uh, I'm basically okay. We're not the teacher, but we're setting the curve, right? Well, that sort of counterfeit is going to lead to the reality that the branches and the needles will harden and break and they will fall onto your floor over time. It cannot give to you what you're asking it to give. It's a counterfeit. It cannot give what it does not possess. Your good works will not be enough. It is like a dead tree in your house. Some of the things that are counterfeit in our lives and our world, they're like artificial trees. They may feel good in the moment, but they're fake. And someday you'll have to box it up. Can't give what it doesn't possess. The emptiness will ring hollow when we realize the time and energy we invested in it it's still just masquerading as a counterfeit hope. Maybe it's a career, or the comforts that brings, the recognition. Maybe it's just the, you've been able to ease through life with relative comfort, whatever it might be. Maybe it's a relationship that you have or long for. I don't know. But if you ask it to give what it doesn't possess, you will find it to be empty. And then there's this shoot that grows up into a branch that bears fruit, that gives life, that never fails, and that is for us and not against us. In Jesus, we have a shoot that is the branch whose roots never dry and whose fruit is born in our very lives. So when all looks lost, where will you turn? In a world that's offering you counterfeits, where will you look? What hope will you find? And I'm saying to you this morning that joy and, and the, the privilege of Advent is that we get to hold out and hold up to one another actual life and hope. Now there will be merriment and cheer that will not run out. We're going to respond to this with my favorite Christmas hymn. just happens to be the week that it's set up. It's in our little devotion guide for those who have been following along. It's at the end of the week that you're about to do. It's called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's my favorite one. Number one, all the others are pretenders. I don't care. It's debatable. All right. Written by Charles Wesley. He wrote in the book, and the words that we'll have on the screen, he wrote stanzas one and four. And sometime in 1978, some person I do not know wrote stanzas two and three. And they're beautiful. And they fit. They fit amazingly. And I want to take a moment to, to read this before we sing this. Because this is the call to us right now. This is the call that we have 
a calling out from that which feels like desolation, a calling out from gloom, a calling out from the counterfeit to, to the real, to the light, to the life. So it's a prayer, it's an anticipation, it's a declaration, it's all of those things. But let's think on these words before we sing these words. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Joy to those who long to see thee, Dayspring from on the high appear. Come, thou promised rod of Jesse. Of thy birth we long to hear. O'er the hills, the angels singing. News, glad tidings of a birth. Go to him, your praise is bringing. Christ the Lord has come to earth. Come to earth to taste our sadness. Whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our Redeemer, shepherd, friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, this, the everlasting wonder, Christ was born the Lord of all. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That is worth singing. Let's pray. Let's sing. God, we thank you so much that in the midst of lives and in a world that feels like all is lost, there is something yet greater greater than we dare to dream or hope, greater because it is you, your promise, your promise fulfilled in Jesus, the fulfilled promise in Jesus applied to our lives. And so, God, I pray that we would have the, the needed power and presence of you, your grace and your mercy for us in our lives so that we would live them out, following you, trusting you, clinging to you, even as things feel lost, as sadness and sorrow feel close as gloom encroaches. God, help us to see that in Christ there is light and life to the fullest. We pray in his name. Amen.